If you've never heard the story of Esther or if you've never read through your Bible the story of Esther, I want to tell you, you are in for a great adventure. The book is just 10 short chapters and yet it contains all of the thrilling aspects of any box office hit that you might go to at the movie theater. It's an incredible cast of really bigger-than-life personalities, characters. You have an out-of-control, narcissistic king with a wife who had had it up to here and was not going to take it anymore, the abuse of her husband. You had a group of yes-men that were surrounding this great king, all of which at their very core were simply looking out for their best interest. You have a man named Mordecai who was living a very hard life, each day just simply trying to survive, and as a result of unfortunate circumstances, he's tasked the responsibility of caring for his young cousin, whose parents had both died. And this young girl that we'll come to know as Esther was beautiful. In fact, on the outside, she appeared to have everything that a young woman could want, and yet that obviously was not enough. She was burdened with growing up without her mom and her dad and growing up in a land which was very different and thought very differently than the values of her family. And yet somehow she was supposed to believe that Jehovah God actually cared about her and that he had a purpose and a plan for her life. It's great stuff. It's what a great TV series is made of. If you've got those shows that you watch and you DVR and every week you're going, I can't wait till it comes on again. I've got one of those. It's Gold Rush. I just admit it right now. Can't wait till it comes on. I put it on the DVR and I'm wanting the DVR to hurry up a little bit more because I want to watch that next episode. Esther has all of those elements in the story and we'll see that over the next several weeks. I want to give you a quick overview as we did in the video of the background of the book of Esther. It is one of the last books written in the Old Testament, and we don't know who authored it. It's funny that as you read commentaries, they all appear to know who wrote it, but the bottom line is, simply put, we don't really know who wrote the book of Esther. Some have speculated that it might have been Nehemiah. Some have speculated that it might have been one of the main characters, Mordecai, who wrote the book. Simply, we do not know, but we do know that it was written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and that's why we're going to study it together. Now, here's what you also need to understand, that the Jews actually love the book because it shows the beginning of the Feast of Purim. I'm sure many of you celebrated that today, right? And we're going to discuss what the Feast of Purim was in just a few weeks. Christians have really not known what to do with the book. In fact, uh, for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, Not one commentary was written on the book of Esther. Isn't that remarkable? Not one commentary. In fact, the great uh, preacher and theologian John Calvin, of all of his sermons that we have available to us, we don't have one sermon that he ever preached out of the book of Esther. And then you'll remember that great reformer by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is said to have basically thought that the book of Esther was a horrible book. I think he feels differently now that he's with Jesus, but when he was here, he felt it was a horrible book and it shouldn't even be in the Bible and we shouldn't preach it. So we're going to do that. One of the reasons why the book is so controversial is because of the difficulty of interpretation. It's never mentioned in any other book of the Bible. It never refers back to the story of Esther. We don't know if several of the main characters, we don't know if they were good people that went bad or if they were good people who were just simply caught in poor circumstances. Now here's what you'll find over the next several weeks. 
that as you listen to other Bible teachers teach this book, you will find a spectrum of how they view main characters such as Mordecai and Esther. There will be some that see them as God-fearing, incredible people that were used of God to save the nation of Israel. You'll find other people that are convinced they are exactly the opposite, that Esther is nothing more than a manipulative young woman who will do anything, use her body, do whatever she needs to do in order to gain attention, in order to gain favor. And Mordecai, he's nothing more than a manipulative man who's using his young cousin. You'll find everything in between. Here's what we're going to do as a result of lots of study and lots of reading. I've become convinced that we simply don't know, and so we're going to make application in the book of Esther, really looking at the possibility of both sides to these main characters. And here's another interesting fact, that God is never mentioned in the ten chapters, not one time. Unlike the book of Daniel, which is also set on the court of a pagan of an evil king, and God is mentioned In the book of Esther, no one prays, nobody gets a miracle, so it seems. There's nothing. This fact, I do believe, makes the book of Esther the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence. I hope you know what God's providence is. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God, in some invisible, incredible way, He governs the creature's actions and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life. Without the intervention of the miraculous, he does what he does because he is providential. Now here's the reason why I believe that God included Esther in the scriptures and why I think it's incredibly relevant for us today. Remember this statement. In fact, if you have your notes out and you have a pen, write this down in your notes. God's presence is not nearly as intriguing as his apparent absence. God's presence is not nearly as intriguing as his apparent absence. All of us at times, we face hurt, we face loss, we face disappointment, and we have wondered quietly, maybe even some of us, I know I have at times, wondered out loud, God, where are you? I won't ask for a raise of hands if you've done that this morning. I just know that for many of us, we've done that, right? Many of us were too embarrassed to do it out loud, but we do it quietly in those moments of great loss, in those moments of of great disappointment. We ask, God, where are you? I need you now. And it appears that you're either busy, you're disinterested, or you are powerless to change my circumstances. I want to say to you this morning that if you have ever been in that place, if you've ever wondered why God seems silent at times, if you've ever wondered if God is working in your life, if you're here this morning and it seems like you're going through one of those desert experiences in your life, if God really has a purpose, if he really has a plan, if all of these circumstances, all of these things in your life are happening for a purpose, if you've ever been there, then I would say to you that the book of Esther is for you. Now, I want you to stay with me for just a few moments because I want to recap some of the things that we just saw on the video because if you've been around here any length of time, you've heard me say this, that context as we study the Bible is everything. And I recognize that there are many of you that are in two different categories, many of you that are new Christ followers. And so uh, the book of Esther is just, it's it's it's, it's like seeing a movie for the first time, right? As opposed to your favorite movie that you've watched a hundred times, you know the lines, right? You know what's going to happen next. 
For many of you, you're new to this, and and I want to give you a little bit of history. For others of you, maybe this is the first time which you're really digging into the Scriptures as we're going to do over the next several weeks, and I want you to understand the context of which the book of Esther is written. So buckle your seatbelts and stay with me here for just a moment while I give you a little bit of a history lesson. Many years before the events in the book of Esther take place, there was a civil war between the Jews. Some of you know that. The Jewish nation was divided into what is referred to as the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And most of the kings that they had on both sides did not walk with God, or they certainly didn't walk with God in a way which pleased him. And eventually, God judged the people of the northern kingdom because of their unfaithfulness to him and their extreme disobedience. And he sent armies from Assyria against them. And as a result, the Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel, they went into bondage. And more than 100 years later, that also happened to Judah. The southern kingdom experienced the same loss because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. And there was a king by the name of Jeconiah. He was a young king. He became king when he was 18 years old. Now, parents, just pause for just a moment. Are you there with me? Those of you that have 18-year-olds, those of you that have been 18 years old, (laughs) think about what it would have been like for you to be the king, right? You can imagine. The historical record tells us that he reigned in 597 B.C., that he had only been king for three short months when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and deported him to Babylon and removed all the treasures from the temple, right? (laughs) Not likely that you're going to be written down as, man, he was one of the great ones, right? I think some of it was because of his age. We read of his story in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 8 through 16. Eleven years later, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, actually returned and he totally destroyed Jerusalem And he carried almost all of the Jews into captivity and he took them to Babylon. In fact, that was prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. The text says, verse 15, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 36, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. That's exactly what happened. And so their king and the remaining Jews were taken into captivity. Babylon, however, was conquered in 539 by the Persians who were ruled by, as our video just said, Cyrus. He was known as Cyrus the Great, okay? Just the opposite of the king that we just talked about. He was a great king. He was regarded, in fact, possibly as the greatest king that ever ruled in the empire which he established, the Persian Empire. Just to give you an idea of the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire stretched from modern-day Pakistan in the east to modern-day Turkey in the west and then down to Sudan in northern Africa, if you know your geography, you know that that's a, that's a huge amount of land. He conquered the Babylonian Empire, however, without even fighting a battle. I don't know how many of your historians even know that. They waded into the Euphrates River and then ultimately through the canals of the city of Babylon on October 12, 539 B.C. And there wasn't even a battle. They simply overtook the city. They conquered the city. In fact, Daniel 5 records, and the Greek historian Herodotus agrees, 
that the Babylonian king Belshazzar, those of you that are students of the Bible, you remember studying in Daniel 5, the great king Belshazzar, that he was most likely engaged in a drunken orgy when his city was attacked and defeated. Not to take too much of a side note here, but that's what happens when leaders aren't on their post, right? We see that in our government from time to time, don't we? When leaders aren't doing what leaders are supposed to be doing, bad things happen. That was certainly the case with Babylon. The people of Babylon, however, actually welcomed Cyrus as a liberator. Our video just told us, and the historical record proves that it was true, that Cyrus actually was a good king. He was a great guy. He actually wanted people to, to serve their gods and to practice whatever religion. He was, he was very open to that. And the Jews had been living in Babylon at that time for approximately 47 years, and so they welcomed Cyrus. They'd been waiting for the time, in fact, when they could return from their homeland, as the prophets had promised would happen. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. In 539 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree. He issued a decree that the Jews be allowed to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem using the resources of Persia. And now I know it's Sunday morning and you stayed up too late last night, but if you read that, in fact, if you get to the book of Ezra, maybe you'll be able to find that there someplace in your Bible. If you get to the book of Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you see the decree that Cyrus issued and he basically said, hey, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, I want you to rebuild your temple, and oh, by the way, I'd love to finance it. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I have people that tell me things that are just a little bit too good to be true, I have a tendency to be a little bit of a cynic, don't you? And such was true of Cyrus as well. I don't think that his motives were altogether pure in nature. In fact, most assuredly, they were not. He most likely simply wanted these exiles to go back to their land so that his authority could be established to the very ends of his empire. And by financing the rebuilding of cities, the rebuilding of, of, in this case, a temple and government offices, what could he do? He could tax them. Fancy that. And as a result of those taxes, his empire would continue to grow. It is interesting to note that as you study through the good and bad kings in the Bible, it's interesting to note that the only pagan king that is referred to by God as my anointed in the Bible is Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. A pretty amazing thing. It really goes to show that the heart of the king is where, does Scripture say? The heart of the king is in God's hand. That would be a good thing, by the way, for us to remember, those of us that continually get upset at election time because our guy doesn't win. I have seen that from time to time. I've seen so-called followers of Jesus Christ who get so riled up and so excited and so depressed and so discouraged because their guy somehow didn't attain to the office and, oh no, what are we going to do now? The bottom line is that no matter who the king is, no matter who the president is, no matter who our representatives are, or who our senators are, that their hearts are in the hands of the king, the God of the universe. God holds their hearts. He moves them where he wants them to go. And that was certainly true of Cyrus. That's why he made decrees like he made in Ezra chapter 1. And he financed the rebuilding of the temple where God was worshipped. After this decree, you'll remember first Zerubbabel, 
Don't ever name your kids Zerubbabel, okay? That wouldn't, that wouldn't, there's nothing about the name Zerubbabel that will work in any culture at any time, but for whatever reason it did there. First Zerubbabel and then Ezra, and we taught not too long ago the book of Nehemiah here at Northwest. Those leaders returned back to Jerusalem with a remnant of people to rebuild the city and more specifically the temple. And they were totally dependent upon the resources of Persia. If you remember in our study of the book of Nehemiah, I told you those people that went back, those people that were going to rebuild, they were pioneers. They were the people that just had something that they could handle. Those are the people that go with us to Africa and spend the night several nights down in the bush. Those are, those are the kind of people. Because that's really what Jerusalem looked like at that particular time. It was demolished. It was destroyed. And so it was only a select group of people that would go back. In fact, the historical record will show us that many of the people actually stayed in Persia when they could have returned to their own land. Now ask yourself this question. Let's just stop for a moment. They're living in a pagan land. In fact, we read in other books of the Bible, we know that these people, when they lived in exile and when they lived in these heathen lands, it was very difficult for them in some respects. Because the values of that culture were totally contrary to the values of their culture. Why not go back to a place where a culture could be established that is more suited to the lifestyle as as a follower of Jehovah God? In fact, this reminds me, these people remind me of the stark contrast in the book of Daniel. You remember in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 that when Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon and they were, they were put in a situation where they were to be the top king's men and they were offered all of the great food and all the great wine and all of the trappings of an evil culture. Daniel said in chapter 1 verse 8, Scripture says that Daniel purposed in his heart. He made up his mind not to defile himself. If you study the book of Daniel and the life of Daniel, you know that that paid off for him in an incredible way. And it still pays off today, I I, want to say to you. Standing for righteousness rarely has short-term benefits. Have you found that to be true? There isn't many times when I stand up for what's right, when right away I go, hey, that was worth it. Do you? I mean, it's, it's rare that it's that way. In fact, when you do something, I, I, I heard a story this week of a couple that found a bag with $11,000 in it uh, out in California. I don't know if anybody else heard that story. First of all, I'm thinking to myself, who walks around with $11,000 in a bag, right? A little stupid, but, you know, they did that. And the story went on that these people immediately went to the police station. They turned the money in. Now, I don't know about you, but for a moment I went, they're stupid. I mean, that's just, well, why would you do that, right? I mean, it's $11,000, it's cash. I mean, somebody left it. Hey, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That's what I always heard. And I never heard, and I thought, well, I'm going to hear the end of the story. You know, the people that they, they, they you know, they gave, uh-uh, uh-uh. That wasn't part of the story. All they did was stand up for truth, stand up for, what, for righteousness. Here's what I know to be true. That while short-term benefits for righteousness are rarely achieved, long-term obedience to God always brings blessing, just like it did for Daniel. And so you see, the book of Esther then is simply a tiny snapshot of the life of the Jews choosing to live in exile in Persia. And while in this town we call Susa, is happening all of these things with this small remnant of Jews. 
This is just a tiny snapshot. While the world goes on, great philosophers are born, great historians are born, we take this tiny snapshot of the book of Esther. And the whole story, in the end, serves as a reminder that God had not forgotten about his people. And I hope will serve as that same reminder to us. Now, if you have your Bible and if you haven't already found it, all right, you should have been working on it for the last 15 minutes because it may take you a while. Go to the book of Esther and let's jump right in to the first chapter in the few moments that we have left together today. Verse 1. Now, it took place in the days of Ashaharis, the Ashaharis who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Ashaharis, which ironically has no meaning in Hebrew. Isn't that funny? Here's supposedly one of the great kings of Persia. And in the Hebrew, it actually means nothing. Ashaharis, one commentator said that when it's pronounced in English, sounds something like King Headache. I probably agree with that. I think you'll see as we go through the next several weeks that that was certainly true of him. You'll see why that particular commentator gave him that name. He is most widely known, however, and we will refer to him over the next several weeks as King Xerxes. Some of you might recognize him if you watch these movies. You might recognize him from the movie 300. Or if you play video games, which you probably shouldn't play, called Assassin's Creed, you may recognize him. He is the great King Xerxes that's in that particular video game. I don't know that by experience, okay? I'm still stuck with Pong, all right? So just, just in case you're going, does he really sit home? That's what he does the rest of the week. No, I don't do that, all right? I had a hard time with Pong when I was a kid. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you were Pong players? Great. You are the old people, all right? The rest of these kids are going, Pong, sounds fun. Boing, boing, boing. We didn't have Xerxes in Pong, all right? His father, however, Xerxes' father, was the legendary King Darius. He ruled for 36 years, and he expanded the empire so that it extended from India all the way to Ethiopia. <laughs> now, I know some of you have been in India, and some of you have been in Africa. You know where Ethiopia is. That is a huge mass of land. Darius, you need to know, was a heathen king. In fact, kings in that day were considered as gods. They had multiple wives and they practiced polygamy. Women were simply treated as objects, as possessions. He had a huge harem. In fact, historians tell us that his harem was so large that there was actually part of the palace, a wing of the palace that was totally dedicated to his harem, to his women who were not his wives. One teacher commented that the lifestyle of these kings would make Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion look like Little League. So you can imagine that no doubt Darius was a great dad, right? And now, lest you mock and laugh too much, I would say to you men to be very, very careful that your lifestyle is not emulating some of these very things that we find it so easy to be critical of these kings that we find in the Bible. I think for many of us, we have habits, we have things in our life that no doubt are causing turmoil for our sons who are growing up with us as the object of their affection. They're growing up with us as their mentors. They're growing up with us as their role models. And I would say to you that no doubt Xerxes has to take responsibility for his character, which we will see exposed over these next several chapters here in the book of Esther. But he learned it well from a father who did not live for him what it meant to be a man. 
let alone a godly man. His son, in fact, was a clone of him. And so Darius passes the throne to his son Xerxes. Here's what you need to understand about Xerxes. He's a spoiled, narcissistic, rich kid. Bottom line. I almost went through, I got something this week which had the characteristics of a narcissist. And I was going to go through and read them all to you. If you want to do it later on, just do a Google search. You'll find out what a narcissist is. And you'll go, that's Xerxes. It's exactly what he was. He was spoiled. He was a rich kid. He grew up in the palace. And most historians believe, undoubtedly, based on the lifestyles of the kings, that he never worked a day in his life. He simply lived a lavish lifestyle at daddy's house. And then one day finds out that he's going to rule over the people that inhabit roughly 3 million square miles. That's what happens, right? That's what happened to you, right? I mean, you just grew up as a narcissistic, spoiled little rich kid, and one day your dad said, hey, it's all yours. That's what was happening with Xerxes. It was all handed right down to him. And he's now in control. He's now ruling this Persian empire, roughly 3 million square miles the size of the United States. And just like his dad, if he said something, it was considered to be law and it was to be obeyed immediately. Do you get the picture? Do you get who this guy is? He takes the throne when he's about 32 years old, which is probably a good thing. That's better than if he would have done like the king of Judah did when he was 18 years old. And by the time we jump into chapter 1 of Esther, he's about 35 years old. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus, actually called the father of history, by the way, Greek history, he described him as the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. Herodotus went on to say he was an ambitious and ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. Now, before you get too carried away with that, some of you women are going, wow, I bet he was a hunk. I bet he was a man's man. Before you get too carried away with that, you need to understand historians back in this day, okay? Keep in mind that in those days, whichever nation would win a battle, would win a war, they basically got to hire a historian to write down the historical record. Sounds like modern day, doesn't it? (laughs) That's what they did. And so they would go to the historian. And so I can imagine that Xerxes says, I choose you to write the story. And he goes, good. You're a tall and handsome king and a jealous lover, a brilliant warrior. Although I don't think I'd want guys saying I was a jealous lover. I think, you know, that may have been a little bit. But he's this tall, handsome guy, evidently. Don't necessarily assume that that's true, that he's the tallest guy of the bunch, that he's the sharpest knife in the drawer. It's just simply what the historian says. One Bible teacher that said he believes that short and wide actually is the standard of manliness and of handsomeness. I'll let you be the judge of that. No comments, please. Verse 2. In those days then, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. He had two palaces, Susa, or maybe some of your translations say Shushan, which is modern-day Iran. Uh, That was his winter home. Pretty nice deal, if you ask me. How many of you would have signed up to be the king of the Persian Empire? It's awesome. It's great. A whole city that basically just exists to be his winter home. So the question is, what's he going to do with all this money that he has inherited from his father in this kingdom? What's he going to do with all this power and fame? Is he going to care for widows and orphans or people in need? Is he going to care for kids that don't have dads and aren't being cared for? 
Or is he going to promote his own selfish agenda? Let's read on in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his province being in his presence. Here's the deal. The historical record tells us that Xerxes is planning to invade Greece. And this is an opportunity for him to make sure that the people he needs are going to be there and they're going to be prepared when he needs them. In fact, back to the Greek historian Herodotus, he wrote this, that Xerxes said at this particular party, at this particular banquet, For this cause I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It's my intent to lead my army through Europe to Greece that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted to him to punish them. And I, on his and on all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burned Athens. Side note, when you get down to chapter 2, look at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1. He has now gone to battle against the Athenians. It's not gone so well. We'll get there in just a few weeks. He says, as for you, this is how you shall best please me. Narcissistic, I think. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with goodwill, and whoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. In other words, don't fight for the love of Persia. Don't even really fight for the love of me. Fight because I can give you something. And if you come and you're loyal to me, I want to show you exactly what I can give to you. And so to show them, he could make good on his promises. Verse 4 says, And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. In fact, 180 days. Let me ask you this. What's the longest party you've ever been to? Think about it. I mean, a Chinese wedding lasts a long time. Some of my Chinese friends have told me that. I mean, they just go on and on and on and on and on. And my friends tell me that they eat things that are crawling on the tables. They do all kinds of things like that. But it's a, it's a long party. But it's not 180 days. He throws a 180-day party. Let's just say that this was the mother of all parties. The idea is to convince any of the doubters about who he is, about his power, about his authority, that he indeed is the man. Look what I have. Look at the empire that I've created and rule over. And that party wasn't enough. Look at verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, this is the Chinese wedding, for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now here's a party for everyone to further solidify the king's military agenda. Most commentators believe that the people that were at this party were the people that were serving at the six-month party. And so now they were going to be wined and dined a little bit. Look at the description of the palace, verse 6. By the way, there aren't too many places in Scripture that we find such a graphic description other than the temple of Jerusalem where God dwelt. Look at verse 6. There were hangings of fine white and velvet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver. You think you're really special because you have genuine leather sofas in your house. He had couches made out of gold and silver. The entire thing fashioned out of gold and silver. And on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, Pavement. 
Porphyry. Hardened rock coming from lava flow. Marble, the mother of pearl and precious stones. That's what they paved out of. In fact, the historical record tells us that when Alexander the Great entered the palace at Susa more than a century later, he found 1,200 tons of gold and silver. 1,200 tons. And 270 tons of minted gold coins. Suffice it to say that this king had more wealth than you and I, even living in the United States of America in 2013, more wealth than any of us can comprehend. Verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Here's the bottom line. Here's how we would translate it into modern English. This is an open bar. You ever been to a wedding where there's an open bar? (laughs) No, not me. I've been there. Yes, you have. People do stupid things at open bars, do they not? After a little while, what was suddenly a good party turns into a bad party really quick. Can I get an amen? You've been there, right? Can you imagine what's happening at this seven-day party where there's an open bar? There's no rules. Drink all you want. And by the way, do it in golden glasses. And don't just drink the cheap wine, right, that you get at Walmart. I guess that's where you get it. I'm not a wine drinker, but, you know, Trader Joe's, maybe that's where you get it too. No, you're not drinking that stuff. You're drinking the royal wine. And notice the end of verse 8. The king gave orders to let everyone do whatever they wanted to do. Can you imagine that? Imagine if you had your teenagers. You said, hey, bring all your friends over to the house. And there's only one rule. Do whatever you want to do. Do it for seven days. Can you stop and fathom that for just a moment? That's what was happening here. Only difference is a group of grown people. We can only imagine the evil that went on in those seven days. We know that there were no women at that particular party, or at least women who weren't being paid for their services at that party. Because we find out in verse 9 that Queen Vashti, we're going to jump there next week, that Queen Vashti decided, I'm going to have another party. I kind of like Queen Vashti. Maybe she knew, he's an idiot. I think what I'm going to do is go have a party for the women over here. We're going to do, you know, what normal people do. And instead, all of the pigs and all the swine, you know, they were over here with King Xerxes doing their thing. And Vashti has a separate party. And so you know what's going to happen when a bunch of drunk men with no adult women supervision is going on, right? More on that next week. Let me ask you this as we close. What would you do if you had unlimited wealth? If you had unlimited power? If you had unlimited authority? Some of you who have listened to me preach and teach long enough know that I have a tendency to, when I, when I te- to dive into the Bible and just think about what, what I would have done if I would have been there. It, it's so easy for me to look at this and go, bad, bad king. Yet part of me is going, that sounds like fun too. Before we simply condemn Xerxes and those participating in these parties, I want to pause and have us look at ourselves for just a moment. 
One Bible teacher said it this way. I want to read this to you. As we condemn their overindulgence, we condemn our overindulgence. As we condemn their desire for glory, and it's what we use Facebook and Twitter and social media to do these days. He said, photos of, of, of what I'm doing because the whole world needs to see what I'm up to because I'm important, I'm significant, I'm central and I'm essential. And there are things that I'm doing that are glorious and you need to see them and you need to praise me and you need to honor me by posting on my wall. Maybe some of us need to be careful there. He goes on to say, the times have changed but the hearts have not It's amazing how what we see externally reveals what is going on internally. It's what Scripture says when it refers to out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks, the hands type. He goes on to say, now at this point, Xerxes is hearing the story, and hearing the story would feel so proud. Look at me in all my glory. But it reveals something of a very wicked, evil, selfish, narcissistic desire to be God. To sit on a throne, to rule over nations, to ravage and abuse women, to indulge in food and drink in excess. And he closes that thought by saying, might I say, he's just simply the first American. Let me give you these things as we close this morning. Lessons from a foolish king. They're not profound. But they are nonetheless lessons that for so many of us, we find it so difficult to learn. Let me say, middle school, high school students, pay attention here. Learn these lessons when you're young from a foolish king. Number one, you'll never be satisfied until you realize that satisfaction is not found in the approval of others. You'll never be satisfied. This pagan king, he never understood this principle. He tried to find satisfaction in wealth, in power, in revenge, in women, in wine. And you know what? People have been doing that ever since. They were doing it before, and they've been doing it ever since. And yet we know the answer to true satisfaction, don't we? That's why we exist. It is the gospel. True satisfaction doesn't come from the approval of other people. In fact, Rarely does any lengthy satisfaction come there. Satisfaction comes when I understand and enjoy the relationship that I was created to enjoy with the God of the universe. When I know that God loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay a sin debt that I couldn't possibly pay on my own. And when I find my true satisfaction in the gospel, that is when I'm truly satisfied. Number two. Very profound here. People spend a lot of time trying to impress others only to find they aren't impressed with you. They just like your stuff and what you can do for them. Now some of you are saying, boy, I hope the kids are taking notes. hope they're getting this down. While it's certainly true of middle school and high school students, let me submit to you that doing what I do, and I'm convinced our other pastors here this morning would say the same thing, It's so true that so many of us as adults have not learned that lesson. So many of us, we buy the homes we buy so that somehow people might be impressed. They might like us better. We buy that particular car. We wear those particular clothes. We do everything that we think might impress other people. And yet, let me tell you, they are not impressed with you. They simply like your stuff and they like what you might be able to do for them. 
Oh, if King Xerxes could have only learned that and understood that. You're going to see in the few weeks to come that he never, ever, ever, ever learned the lesson. Even when their motives were exposed for being impure. He simply thought these people were around him. They loved him. They adored him. Look at all I've done for them. I'm sure you did. Number three. It's never about what you have. It's about what you do with what you have. Isn't it interesting that for so many of us that we say, man, if I was Xerxes, if I had 1,200 tons of gold and silver, what I would do for the ministry? What I would do for those people in Africa? Or, man, that Jamaican pastor boy, he almost started preaching a little while ago. If I had 1,200 tons of gold and silver, I'd give him a ton of it to take back with him. Start that church. Let me tell you this. It's never about how much you have. It is about what God entrusts to us that he allows us to take as managers, not owners, as managers and use for his honor and for his glory. I look at you guys sitting on the front row. Boy, if you understood that, that it's never going to be about how much you have. It's going to be about what you do with what God's given you. Boy, if Artaxerxes could have learned that lesson, if Xerxes could have understood that thing. But in the end, he realized this, that when you die, you leave it all behind. As I mentioned, God is not mentioned in these first eight verses, and he'll not be mentioned in the remaining nine and a half chapters. It would seem as if he's absent, as if he's disinterested. Some might even say, no, he's probably just mad. Do you ever feel that way about God? He's mad, so he took his toys and he went over there. As some of you here this morning, you think that you can really identify with the story of this book. You don't hear God's voice very often. Maybe you're in a season right now where you don't see his hand. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're praying and seemingly you're not getting any answers. At least you're not getting the answers that you want. Your circumstances seemingly aren't getting any better. Let me remind you this morning that God is at work. If there's anything that the book of Esther is going to show us is that even when God seems silent, he is present. And I do believe that God's will for a person's life is unfolded through divine providence day by day by day. God does things and he orchestrates the circumstances of our life ultimately to get us where he wants us to be so he can use us in his plan for his glory and for our good. And In spite of all the wretched, sinful, nasty events of these first few verses, here's what's ironic. God is doing something for his people and for his glory. And so our big idea this morning is really pretty simple. Sometimes God may seem invisible, but he's always invincible. I'm telling you, if you could grab a hold of that this morning, if you could live with that idea in mind, with that deep thought, really theological truth in mind, that even when God is invisible, he is always invincible. He is always in control. He he is always powerful. And that's why the great hymn of the faith, which I'm sure many of you have never even sung, but some of us have, goes like this. Immortal, invisible, 
God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. That's our God. And even when he seems silent, even when he seems invisible, he is always invincible. And we're going to see that as we walk through this great story of Esther. I think those that have failed to preach it because it's difficult to interpret, it's difficult to preach sometimes, we've missed such rich truths that you're going to see over the next several weeks as we unpack the verses in the book of Esther. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thanks for your sovereignty, thanks for your providence. I mess up every day of my life, even when I know stuff. I am so, so glad that my life is in the hand of one who is in control of everything in this universe right now. And God, we confess that sometimes we do feel like you're silent. Sometimes we do feel like you're distant. Sometimes we, we just feel like you, you don't care. You're disinterested. God, I pray right at the outset of our study of the book of Esther that you would impress upon our hearts that while sometimes you may seem invisible, you are always invincible. You are the God of the universe that loves us passionately and deeply. I pray that you'd convince us of that truth today. As now we go out into the world to be salt and light, I pray that we will live in such a way that we believe that truth. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.